But first to Bob. Let's start with the bloke himself reflecting on his legacy and a note the interview was recorded when our PM was still Scott Morrison. But here's Bob in his own words. A bloke who um, uh, loved his country, still does, and loves Australians, and who was not essentially changed by high office. I hope they still will think of me as... Uh, the Bob Hawke that uh, they got to know, the Larrikin trade union leader who perhaps had sufficient common sense and intelligence to uh, tone down his Larrikinism to some extent and behave in a way that a Prime Minister should if he's going to be a proper representative of his people, but who in the end is essentially uh, a dinky die Australian. I hope that that's the way they'll think of me. A larrikin, certainly. A fierce fighter for workers' rights, an authentic leader in Australian politics. Much of the history of our 23rd Prime Minister has been examined in, well, gruesome detail and reflected on extensively by both his contemporaries and his family. But there are some details. Our next guest, the aforementioned Troy, says have yet to come to light or perhaps have been glossed over. Troy Bramston historian, author, senior columnist with The Australian, and he's been our guest here on LNL on numerous occasions. Troy's been the biographer of both Menzies and Keating, and he now turns his forensic eye to Bob. Now, Troy interviewed more than uh, 100 people who knew and worked with Hawke and gained access to never-before-seen archival documents, family diaries, notes and letters, cabinet papers and secret correspondence between Hawke and other Cold War leaders. The result? Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny. Troy, welcome back. Thanks so much for having you back on the program, Philip. Troy, you first met Bob back in 1994. First impressions, please. Yeah, well, I was a young, very young university student, uh, just turned 18, and I went to a dinner and he was there as a relatively new ex-Prime Minister and I caught his eye and shook his hand and introduced myself and the room seemed to blur a little bit, the sound dulled and I had been struck by lightning. I mean, I had witnessed and felt the hawk charisma that so many people had talked about and I was... Um, very much interested in this personality and this person and over the years got to know him pretty well and did many interviews and then many, many years after that turned my attention to this biography. In many ways he reminds me or I've always thought of him as Australia's Bill Clinton for a great many reasons but let's go back to his childhood. Tell us about his mum who yeah, well, always he... thought he was destined for greatness. That's right. His mother, Ellie, was a very devout Christian. She was a leader in the temperance movement. Her chosen career was a teacher. Um, and his father, of course, Clem, was a clergyman, a congregational minister. But Ellie had this great premonition that her second son, Bob, was destined for greatness. There was this sense of destiny. And when I was able to read his father's unpublished memoir, 
you know, from the very first moments when Bob literally came into the world, you know, blinking into the early morning light, um, the hospital staff, according to the Hawk family legend, said this boy is destined for great things. So that's what he grew up with. He didn't really necessarily believe in destiny, but he did believe some kind of celestial force was guiding him. It's a bit like our incumbent Prime Minister who's under the same impression. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, Bob, you know, never really fully subscribed to his, his parents' uh, belief in kind of divine intervention, but he, he really did think that somebody was guiding him and there was a, a force in his life uh, that was propelling him to do great things. And, of course, he was showered by love. He was a spoiled child. He was told to believe that he was special. And he, that gave him a great inner confidence that he carried through his entire life. Now, religion was a big part of his early life. And in fact, it was through the Congregational Youth Fellowship that he met a young woman called Hazel Masterton. Yeah, that's right. Look, I was quite surprised to go back and look at um, Bob Hawke's time in the Congregational Youth Fellowship. He was a student Christian leader. He gave some very powerful uh, speeches, um, talking about the Christian faith and urging people to to give themselves to God. And um, through the church, he, of course, met, met Hazel, and that began a very long-standing but often very turbulent relationship from the beginning um, but later on in life when he went to India on a student Christian conference in 1952 he lost the faith um, you know he was there in, in India at this conference and saw widespread poverty and just couldn't believe um, the kind of opulence and wealth that the Christian churches had while people were literally starving in the streets and so I was able to get a copy of Bob's diary from that time and that chronicles his his move away from organised religion. Now, on Bob's way to Oxford as a uh, newly minted Rhodes Scholar in 1953, he stopped in Cape Town. You've read Bob's diaries of the trip. What was his impression of the apartheid regime? Well, this was really extraordinary, Philip, to see this diary from a, young, a very young Bob Hawke. You know, he had won the Rhodes scholarship he's on his way to Oxford the ship that he was on stopped in Cape Town where he met a family friend who gave him a tour and in in the diary he writes about his complete abhorrence and repugnance of apartheid and said that there would be a day of reckoning at some time in the future now this is pretty unique view at that time this is you know 1953 and of course many many years later he would become one of the world leaders in the fight against apartheid in in the trade union movement and especially as prime minister through the commonwealth country so as a biographer you kind of look for those kind of illuminating moments when you're going through the archives and there was one um, was an early distaste for apartheid and wanting to do something about it you've got revelatory moments on every page tell me now about the uh, a vehicle called the fornicatorium yeah, this was a, a Ford van that uh, that Bob had purchased while he was at Oxford, and it became known as the Fornicatorium um, because he used to like to take young ladies into the back of the van and have his way with them. Um, and so we see at a very, very young age this demon in Bob Hawke about trying to restrain um, his rampant sexual appetite. And it's not about being particularly purient or prying into his private life. I had to really wrestle with this because... You know, he lived a very supercharged existence and um, his infidelities is a big, big part of 
his personality, a big part of his life. And it's there in those early days. You know, he was unfaithful to Hazel when he was engaged to her while he was starting at Oxford. Um, and I was able to get uh, access to these family letters with, with Bob's approval that he was writing to Hazel in the early 1950s while he's at Oxford. And he's writing to her, exposing his soul. He's basically saying, look, I can't control my sexual desires. You have to come to Oxford as soon as you can because I love you. And he did love her, um, but he was worried that he couldn't tame this, uh, this need, this desire that he had. So he's struggling with this demon, and that lasted his entire life. It was, it was really extraordinary to read these letters and, and very uncomfortable, and a lot of people, I think, will be shocked to read them in the book. Now, when Bob was at Oxford, he chose as his thesis what? Yeah, he decided to do a thesis on the basic wage and the industrial relations system in Australia. Now, this is extraordinary, right? I mean, he's at Oxford. He's got access to the greatest minds on the planet, and he's doing a degree about the Australian industrial relations system. But what that shows you is that he wanted a degree that was geared towards a practical purpose. At that stage, he was thinking about becoming an academic. He had an interest in industrial relations. He liked the law and he liked economics. So all of those things came together and that became his focus of study. And of course, later on, that was the pathway that put him um, towards the, the ACTU. Now, he moves to Canberra to do his PhD at the ANU. Tell us more. Yeah, he was at the ANU. He was doing his PhD. Um, he had a young daughter in Susan. He's married to Hazel by now, um, but he's not particularly happy there. He's still chasing other women at ANU. Um, he wasn't able to settle down, but he was a very magnetic personality. You know, he was popular. Um, he was a bit of a larrikin. He often got into trouble on campus. Um, now, of course, he's, his uncle Albert was the Premier of Western Australia at this time, and his father had been active in the Labor Party as well. And so this idea about going into politics sort of percolated through his life, and he was considering options about whether to go into politics or not, thinking about it. This is still in the 1950s. Um, and it was while he was at the, a at the ANU that the ACTU invited him to help them on their basic wage case. And so he provided some research assistance. And then in 1958, he was at a turning point. He was offered a job as the ACTU advocate, the first full-time in-house advocate. And he had to choose between academia or the union movement. And he chose the union movement. And that was a big moment in his life. Our mutual friend, Bill Kelty, has some vivid memories of Bob at this stage, doesn't he? Yeah, look, it's extraordinary. Bill Kelty was a young university student and he was told that uh, the best act in town in Melbourne was to go down to the Industrial Relations Commission and see Bob Hawke take on the world. And so there was Bob Hawke. You know, he was standing in the commission. The trade unions were... Um, sceptical of him. The bench were actually insulted that they didn't have senior counsel before them. The employers thought he was going to be easy to defeat. But in his first uh, case, which was the 1959 basic wage case, he stunned them all. I mean, he's he was a very dynamic, um, very passionate persuader. He would throw his hands into his pockets, take them out again, run his fingers <laughs> through his hair. He would ro roll on the on the heels of his feet. Sometimes he'd get so exhausted he'd have to take his shoes off. He'd thump, thump the podium. And, you know, he won a massive pay increase for Australian workers just within months of joining the ACTU. And so that's why Bill Kelty was there, was to see Bob Hawke take on the world and win. And that was where they first met. And Bob said to him, you know, when you finish your degree, 
come and see me if you want to work for the trade union movement. Now, you say that Hawke had what uh, the World Health Organization diagnoses as, quote, compulsive sexual behaviour disorder, and this was a bit of a problem at the ACTU. Yeah, look, it was. I mean, it was a pretty sort of heady atmosphere, I guess. You know, there's a lot of drinking going on. There's a lot of socialising. But, of course, he's married um, and he's got um, a young family. He had three children, uh, lost a a boy just after he died. Um, And, of course, he's living this very energised, supercharged existence, um, still struggling with these demons. And he was a terrible husband and often a very absent father. Um, but Hazel and the children loved him deeply. He loved them, but he's in this constant battle, you know, to control his, his desires. And, um, you know, some of the things he said about women are absolutely appalling in the 1960s. He gave interviews, Philip, where he talked about the kind of women that he liked, you know, while his wife's at home reading this in the newspaper. Um, and, of course, uh, this, is, this is a theme throughout his entire life. I thought I knew most of the... Uh... Bob's, well, many of Bob's girlfriends, but I didn't realise that uh, as PM, he was having an affair with longtime secretary Jean Sinclair. Yeah, this is one of those things where I had been told about it, but I had to sort of get some people on the record talking about it. And she was very, very close to Bob. She had joined him as a personal assistant at the ACTU in 1973 and remained on his staff when he went into Parliament and then all through the Prime Ministerial years until she tragically died of cancer in 1991. But they were very, very close. He trusted her, but they did have an intimate relationship. Not all the staff knew about it, but it did happen. Um, And um, Hazel knew about it as well. And, of course, he's having affairs with other women. And Blanche Del Puget is one of them. Um, you know, he's constantly propositioning women throughout the 1970s. He's still chasing women as as prime minister. You know, John Brown, the tourism minister, went on the record to say to me he was the keenest chaser of women he'd ever seen while he was prime minister. So this went on. And to write a, to write a book about somebody, you have to understand their life. You have to explore every aspect of it or you're not going to be faithful to yourself or true to your readers. And so this is a big part of Bob's life. And I had to write about it. Um, and I think the fact that he was essentially a sex addict and that was endorsed by Blanche Del Puget in an interview that I did with her was something I just couldn't ignore, but it, it's still shocking. Back to Bill Kelty, who I once called the killer koala. Kelty uh, described uh, Bob as drinking, then he would F somebody and he would gamble until 2.30 or 3.30 in the morning and then... Uh, when the ACTU execs, executive started at 9am in the morning, he was the second one there and he was fine. I also have vivid memories of this extraordinary resilience. Yeah, there's something incredible about him. You know, he was a highly functioning alcoholic. There's no doubt about that. And, um, you know, Ralph Willis, who later became a minister, he worked with Bob at the ACTU in the 1960s. And he said to me that, you know, sometimes Bob might drink 20 beers in a session. Um, And one of the surprising things was, you know, he could be a terrible drunk, he could be loud and abusive, but he didn't seem to put on any weight. He didn't develop a a barrel-sized beer gut, um, but he had this great constitution, you know, and that was also a big part of his life, the drinking. And a lot of people who saw him, and you would be one of them, Philip, you know, in the 1960s and 70s thought this guy will never be prime minister because of the drinking. But of course, he gave it up when he went into parliament in 1980, and that 
that shocked everybody who knew him well. I remember him coming to the opening night of uh, my film Don's Party and he arrived. He had to be sort of carried to his seat and dropped there. By the time the film was open, over, he not only had woken up but he insisted on hosting a party. I mean, the physicality of the guy was extraordinary. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot of very hairy stories in the book from people you know, who worked in the Labor Party or were Labor Party candidates or the trade union movement about Bob arriving at functions drunk, uh, late, um, sometimes out of control. I mean, there are even reports about him being drunk on television. People used to watch him do interviews and he was on TV or radio nearly every day in the 1970s. Um, and they would, ring, they would ring the studio and say, I, I think the ACTU president is drunk. Um, and he probably was. And, you know, a number of times it nearly killed him. He had alcohol poisoning several times and Hazel had to nurse him back to health. He sometimes went to a, a family doctor's property um, in Gippsland where he would have to dry out. So, you know, this was this was a, another big part of his life, an- another demon that he struggled with. Um, and it's extraordinary to to tell these stories. And, and it's incredible that he survived so long because... Um, you know, it, it, it really could have killed him on a number of occasions. So when Hawke and Hazel divorced in 1992, and she wrote a book, My Own Life, announcing she was no longer Bob's handbag, there was a, a lot of public sympathy for Hazel. Yeah, look, there was. She was a, a national treasure. And, you know, I got to know Hazel a little bit because we served on the New South Wales Centenary of Federation Committee. But, of course... She died many years ago, so I wasn't able to interview her. But her memoir is really extraordinary, and a really extraordinary book. She does talk a lot about the infidelity and the drinking and uh, the stormy relationship she had with Bob. But she did love him very deeply, and she wanted to spend the rest of her life with him. She kept coming back to him. And in, in one of the interviews I did with her close friend, Wendy McCarthy, she made the point to me that the women were the least of Hazel's concerns. It was really the drinking. And that was what she worried about the most. Um, and she was very pleased when he gave it up. And she did feel that during the prime ministership, they had entered a very happy phase in their marriage. And she was an, a political asset to him. But of course, she probably didn't know about the extent of the womanizing that was still going on. So I've tried to rescue Hazel in this book, Philip, because I think they did have a great love story. And I was able to interview Susan and Stephen Hawke, um, their children. And I wanted to you know, put Hazel back into the story because she is really the most important person in his life. Um, He wouldn't have been a successful ACTU president or prime minister without her. Well, those of us knew who knew Hazel loved her dearly. You mentioned that she was a living national treasure. Bob didn't make the cut of official living national treasures, did he? No, he didn't. And that was a sore point between them. Um, And it's something that Blanche Del Puget has mentioned as well. Of course, his second wife. Um, I think Gough Whitlam was a national living treasure. Um, and uh, so, so, yeah. so was John Howard, I have to tell you. Right, okay. Well, um, I'll leave that there. But, look, I mean, it's one, of the, it's one of those things where, you know, Bob went through a very difficult phase, you know, after the prime ministership. He divorced Hazel. He wrote a memoir that trashed Paul Keating. There was public outbursts and silly comments, and he went back on the grog. Um, and, you know, he was having an affair with, with Blanche Del Puget, which, of course, they both denied at the time. Um, so he was, he was in the doghouse, really, and he had fallen out of love with the Australian people, and it wasn't until years later 
well after the prime ministership that he did return to that larrikin celebrity superstar that he was in the 1970s your final interview with bob was just well, three months before he died. And Bob wasn't that keen on reflecting on his legacy, but let's uh, hear what he said about his time as PM. I leave the uh, Prime Ministership uh, proud of the record of achievement of the government, which I've had the honour and privilege of leading uh, for uh, nearly nine years. The Australia uh, of 1991 uh, is a profoundly better place than the Australia of early 1983 uh, that uh, I inherited. Australia is now a more uh, outward-looking, more tolerant and more competitive uh, country than it was when I came to office. Did he really reconcile with Keating? I think he did. I mean, I was very fortunate in that I was able to interview Paul Keating for this book and he described in vivid detail their final meetings in late 2018. And uh, Paul said to me that he felt that Bob wanted to come to a, a happy place in their relationship. They wanted they wanted to both recognise the great partnership um, and they had set aside their differences. And Bob was very, very happy as well that that had happened. You know, he got emotional when he was talking to me about how he'd seen Paul recently, and and he described their relationship as one as one of affection, and so that is really extraordinary, I think. And they they did have a very up and down relationship. They were a great political duo. Of course, that exploded over the leadership in 1991 when I think Hawke should have kept his side of the deal to step aside for Keating, but he didn't do that. But in the end, they did come to a happy place and. I've often described it as kind of like brothers, you know, they didn't hate each other. They had differences, but deep down, they still really liked, admired and respected one another. And more, most importantly, they were proud of what they did together. Let's let's talk about Hawke and Hayden. You've got some remarkable information that with which I was totally unfamiliar. Yeah, look, it was one of the great privileges of my life to be able to interview Bill Hayden many times. And we talked on the phone regularly as I was writing uh, this book in recent years. And um, he gave me access to his personal papers. And there I was sitting in the National Library and pulling out a a folder of a box, Philip, and then turning the pages. And I was shocked to find these letters from February 1983, which spelt out the deal that Hayden wanted to step aside as Labor leader, which of course happened on the day that Malcolm Fraser called the election. And so these letters are a great historical find, and I've put them in the book as an appendix so people can read the actual letters. But Well, of course, Hayden was justifiably very bitter about what happened, but I hadn't realised he'd sort of cut a deal. Yeah, a very detailed deal. He wanted to guarantee that he'd be foreign minister in a Labor government. He wanted his, uh, his friends in the shadow ministry looked after. He wanted his staff to be found new jobs. And he wanted an ambassadorial appointment down the road, which didn't eventuate. And Hawke agreed and they signed the documents. It's like a contract. Now, the important thing to note about that, Philip, is that this was Bill Hayden's insurance. It was very difficult for him to give up the, the leadership. He was in turmoil about it. But he had this insurance with with Hawke. He had it in writing. Um, and this really became, I think, the foundation of the Hawke government. And when I talked to ministers like Gareth Evans or, or Kim Beasley, who were in the foreign foreign affairs and defence portfolios, they, they, they said to me that, you know, Bob's relationship with Bill was very good in government. They were very respectful towards each other, mindful of each other's views. And Bill Hayden said to me that he thought that Bob, in the end, was a great prime minister. So there you have it. Now, we... 
you know, we could talk literally for hours and we need that sort of time to do your book justice. But I uh, I have to ask you, in, a, in effect, in summary, what is, in your view, the Hawke legacy? Well, there's a number of things, uh, Philip. I mean, he did overcome these demons to become a very significant prime minister. I think the best since World War II. I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, very popular, you know, extraordinary approval from the Australian people. He mastered the art of governing. He was a very good cabinet chair, a very good manager of government. He welcomed frank and fearless advice. And this sounds easy, but in recent decades, we've shown, we've seen that it's very hard uh, to run a government effectively. And he did it very well. Um, but the leg, the policy legacy is significant. I mean, we all know about the major economic reforms which turned Australia around, but the social policy reforms are significant like Medicare and the Sex Discrimination Act and the big things he did in environmental policy like saving the Daintree or Kakadu and on the world stage. I mean, he was a Cold War leader. He had very good relations with people like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and George Bush. You know, he played a significant role in saving Antarctica and also uh, ending apartheid in South Africa. So he leaves a, an immense legacy, which I don't think is matched across the board by any other prime minister. But at the centre of this book is a man who had not only reformed Australia, but reformed himself. I mean, his life is a redemption story. He battled with those demons, but he was able to turn it, turn himself around and then turn the country around and leave a, a very lasting legacy. A wonderful performance, Troy. You're a maestro. We've been talking to uh, Troy Bramston, author, historian, senior writer with The Oz. His new book, Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny, the definitive biography, is published by Penguin Random House Australia. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.